Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television series of all time, hosted by two fellas who love the show because, well, you know, one guy really liked watching it and the other guy really liked acting on it. And that would be Mr. Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ryan Patrick. So I am the guy that that liked working on it and you are the, you're the guy that liked watching it. Is that right? Just so I have a straight because I get confused every once in a while. Yeah. Good. That's a great question. Let me check my notes. Okay. Uh, hang on. Yes, that is correct. That is okay. correct. All right. Then we can go on. Glad we cleared that up. Yeah. We, <laughs> we can move forward now. Um, so this is a cool episode because uh, we're going on location. We're taking a hike today, Jeff. Ooh. When some people say take a hike, it's a bad thing. But in this case, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a real good thing. Taking a hike to go to this location that we're going to talk about today is a really good thing. It's an exciting thing, and we're going to learn some very exciting things about this location, this special place on Earth. I consider it MASH Mecca in a way, you know, I mean, because ah. it's a place where all MASH fans can come and celebrate the show. And of course, we're talking about the original shooting location, the outdoor shooting location there at Malibu Creek State Park. We're going to be talking with a guy named Brian Rooney, and Brian is the man that you have to thank for having this location be available year-round. Without Brian Rooney, this location would be a coyote ranch. Brian's a great guy. He has a great story about how this all came about, and you're going to hear it right now with our conversation with Brian Rooney. So, Brian, first of all, what is your uh, official slash unofficial role with the MASH set at Malibu Creek State Park? So my role is this all started uh, when I uh, became a volunteer for the state park in the year 2000. But I did that primarily from a from the standpoint of being a historian. And so I've been I've been doing my my volunteer duty as as a historian of the area for now. Actually, it's been 22 years. But. My foray into the MASH world came when, uh, and I think it was 15, 16 years ago, something like that, when myself and two other guys, also uh, historians of the area, film historians of the area, uh, we gave a tour of the state park that we got a really nice announcement in the LA Times and 300 people showed up and we're doing our walk through the park and and everything's fine and we're going into the back country where there's where there's less foot traffic and it had rained the previous week and we get to a small hill leading down into a long valley that takes us to the mash set and the mud was so deep there that we literally could not go forward people were sinking a foot into the mud yikes <laughs> And when that started to happen, and I realized the danger and the inconvenience and all of the, I mean, I had a hundred people with me who were sinking in the mud. I said, we can't go, you guys. And the groans of disappointment over not being able to get to the mash set were so profound. So these are people being, you know, forced under the under the ground by the mud. Right. But they are upset because they want to get to the mash set. Exactly. That's quite a thing. Wow. Right. And so, uh, so that's when I was woken up, honestly, because I was in college when the finale episode aired 
And I remember walking through the dorm and there was a lot of people gathered in front of the big group television at that point. And they were all watching it, but I was never really a fan until that day when I realized, oh, wait a minute, this show that went off the air 25 years ago is still popular? What? (laughs) And I went, why are these people groaning so much? And that's when I started to dive into the history of the show it's, it's resonance in popular culture, all the awards that it's won. And I also put in a call to 20th Century Fox Television and asked them, how many countries is this show still airing in around the world? And when they said 36, I went, holy crow. <laughs> so I realized that this is a far bigger thing than I thought. Mm-hmm. And with, with all of that information, I then went to the deputy superintendent of the state park and the head ranger. And said, look, you guys are sitting on a real cultural gem here. This site needs to be brought back, not restored, but revived. Because a restoration would be bringing back the tents and the buildings and the props and all that type of stuff. And that would lead to... A a very difficult situation with fans coming in, thinking it was all the original stuff Mm -hmm. and just stealing it all, which we would understand. So we wanted to do a careful revival. uh, But the difficulty is it is now a state park first and a cultural site second. So we also had to be, you know, very careful with state park issues and all that. So the deputy superintendent, fortunately now retired said to me, well, we can do this the right way and go through three years of paperwork with our central office up in the state capitol, or we can hand you a chainsaw and look the other way. Which would you like? (laughs) (laughs) And so knowing that the, now this was, this was all going down in, uh, let's see, that conversation took place in the summer of 2007 and the 25th anniversary of the finale that Jeff came out for was the next uh, next February. And so we did not have three years, not even close to three years. And so when I got that permission in the summertime and knowing that I wanted to have all the clearance done, the revival stuff done well in advance, because this was going to be an, a pretty important thing. I was out there doing the late summer and early fall months clearing brush. A lot of brush had to be cleared away because what state and national parks oftentimes do is when a production is over, they will let the site return to nature. And boy, did it ever (laughs) because there was so much brush out there that was blocking the old set that it took me, I think, 40, 50, 60 hours of, of clearance work in the sun, chainsaws and pulling roots out and all kinds of stuff. Wow. To bring the set back. How many? of you were doing that. It wasn't just you with the chainsaw chasing the coyotes away. There must have been somebody else with you, I hope. Well, no, that's the thing. Is that oh. the majority Yeah, the majority of the state park volunteers are retired elderly women. <laughs> and so I could So not- what? Come on. They- <laughs> so I know some retired elderly women who can really work a good yeah. chainsaw. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Better than me, actually, yeah. <laughs> and so no, I, at that point, I had been a volunteer with this group, uh, like I said, for five, six, seven years already. And knowing these folks, I said, I'm not even, I can't even ask them because it's, there's no shade, there's no water, no restrooms. This is, this is going to be nasty, ugly work, I, I realized. And so I just dug in and did it. I should have recruited some male friends of mine, some younger male friends of mine, but I didn't want to ask people for favors and put them into this really nasty work. So My I just... Goodness. Mm. I, I'm stunned. I really... This is a shock to me. So you are basically single-handedly responsible 
for restoring the mash set out there. Is that, yeah. would I have that correct? Sort of. Now, here's what's happened is that at the tail end, there was a bunch of little brush that was left over. So for one day, I think it was in January, a month before the event we had out there, um, a team of these other volunteers did come in and help me do some mop-up work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was a single six-hour session. And I, like I said, by myself, I had done 50, maybe even 60 hours of work out there. Wow. The, the, uh, the mop up work, was that done by the old women? Right. It was, it was, it was a large group of- Get the old woman in there somewhere. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And they're a lovely bunch of people. They are, but it's, I also knew that there are limitations to what I could ask of them. So it was just something I felt I should just go ahead and do. It was also much easier from a standpoint of ass coverage with the state park, because what I was doing was officially unauthorized. My ass was being covered by the head ranger and his (laughs) boss. But the number of people who, when I was working out with there with a chainsaw, the number of people who would come by and go, what are you doing? It's like, I just had to say, I have permission. It's fine. Keep walking. <laughs> because people were understandably upset because I'm out there with a chainsaw. And sure. what they did after that was they let me drive out there with a state park truck. So then I had the white pickup truck with the park logo on the side. And that helped reassure people that what I was doing was legitimate. That you weren't just a madman with a chainsaw. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. In fact, that's the title of my first book is Madman with a Chainsaw. Yeah, a chainsaw, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's really where it all started. And so then then after everything was cleared, then uh, the signpost, a uh, uh, replica of the signpost was rebuilt. And I'll get into more details about that if you guys want to later. And we put up little markers of where the tents and, and certain things were. We put a map of the set out there. And then we had the public stream in and about 300 people came in. It was it was Jeff. It was Gene Reynolds. It was Burt Metcalf, Mike Farrell. Uh, let's see, William Christopher. Loretta was there. But it was it was also too. Charlie Dubin was out there, and and Charlie's mm-hmm. not a household name, but Charlie directed more episodes of Mash than anyone. And it was really his daughter Zan, who is a PR expert, who went to her father's Rolodex and called all you guys and said, "Get your asses out here! We're having a celebration." <laughs> and so I give her all the credit for getting all you folks out there. And she said, "I remember her saying because the next call will be from a guy with a chainsaw." So <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do what I say. Exactly. She's small. She's all of, I think, 95 pounds, but she packs a punch. Yeah. So I listen to what Zan. Oh, yeah. She is adorable, too. We love her. She's adorable. Yes. Park.org uh, is where you can find pictures from that 2008 celebration, the 25th anniversary celebration with all of the cast members out there. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well for this episode. Yeah, that's great. That was a lot of fun, Brian. It really was. And yep. you, I, I had no idea that we have you to thank for pretty much 99% of this. This is just an amazing revelation here. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much. So did you, are you now part of the park organization? Did they say, here's 50 bucks or did they hire you or what, no. are you just still a volunteer guy? That's it? I'm still a volunteer guy. And it's funny that they wanted, uh, they, uh, the head ranger of the park for years wanted me to come in as one of their public education specialists. But I had to remind him that I am an old dude and they want young women. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, I've heard of that before. <laughs> right. 
Right. Uh, ideally with teaching backgrounds. That's the ideal public education specialist for a state park. They want they want the teachers, which is great. Hmm. And it's funny. All I had to do was look at all of the previous public education specialists that I've known in the state park over the years, and never once were they an old dude. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> you know what? I shouldn't even apply. So so no. So no, I stayed, I stayed a volunteer, which is fine. But no, it's been a really wonderful project to have touched this many people. And I'm talking, no kidding, millions of people all over the globe are saying thank you to this, whoever this guy in California is for doing this, because it is, it is, it is ground zero. That and stage nine uh, are ground zero for this show that all these people around the world love so much. Mm -hmm. And even if they never make it, you guys, they feel like now there's a place where it's being remembered. The show is truly being remembered uh, 365 days a year now. Yeah. So it's been it's been a really it's been a, a really satisfying experience. My goodness. Well, you did a wonderful thing when you created the. Uh the 25th, wait, I'm sorry, the 50th anniversary uh, celebration out there. Right. Uh, and Ryan and I were out there and we had a great time and a whole bunch of folks came out. And, yes. Uh, you know, we served a few buns and <laughs> some beef, beef jerky or whatever that was. I don't remember. <laughs> Could have been squirrel jerky. I don't know. <laughs> It was, it was coyote jerky. Coyote jerky. <laughs> <laughs> Homemade. That was a lot of fun. And, and you know, you should get more accolades because everybody that came out there was quite emotional about it. Yes. And people cried and yep. stood and stared at, you know, looked around and went, wow, this is the real thing. Yeah. And uh, had it not been for, for you, they would not have had that experience. So it's a wonderful thing. Well, it's also it's also absolutely true, you guys, and to everyone listening, that this is the only set of a classic film or television show that is open to the public year round. You know, it's an amazing thing. You're not having to pay for a tram tour at Universal to see this thing. And so you can walk in anytime. It's completely free. Granted, it is a bit of a hoof, mm -hmm. but it is it is where the show was shot and uh, or at least the exteriors yeah. were shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's a, it's a remarkable place. Now, have I ever shared with you guys the story of how the show came to be shot at that site? No. Uh-uh. Okay. It's a great story. So, uh, well, it's we're out of time, Brian. Oh, Thanks so okay. much. Oh. Uh, no, it's, it's interesting that uh, some guy named Gene Reynolds was looking at the set that they had built for Robert Altman's MASH movie. They were looking at the set on the then 20th Century Fox Ranch going, well, what do we do with it now? And and so somebody said, oh, well, let's try a TV show. It'll probably fail. <laughs> and so they kind of revamped and simplified the movie set into the TV set, shot it all in the same place. But there's another very funny story about how it came to be set there, which is before Altman shot his movie, he was sitting in a meeting with Richard Zanuck, at that time the uh, head of production for 20th Century Fox, uh, and Altman was saying, I have to go shoot my movie in Korea. I am, I am determined to make this as realistic as possible. And, um, so Richard Zanuck did something very clever. Uh, he knew that that request was coming because he had talked to uh, Altman on the phone about it previously, but Altman was coming in to present his case for going overseas to shoot his movie. So 
Mr. Zanuck did a smart, very smart thing. He slid two 8x10s uh, uh, photographs across a desk at Altman and said, one of these is Fox Ranch, one of these is Korea. If you can pick which one is Korea, you get to go shoot your movie there. And he picked wrong. Oh, wow. Wow. Because the terrain of the uh, kind of, I would say, I would call it Central Korea, because that's where the show was taking place. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the DMZ, basically, the, the line uh, that separates North and South Korea. That terrain in there is so similar to the old Fox Ranch that sometimes you can't tell them apart. Mm. I have pictures of the original 8063rd in Korea. And you look at these pictures and you'd go, holy crap, that's the state park. Hmm. Is it possible? Is it possible that the Korean War was actually fought out at the ranch rather than <laughs> Korea? Is that that, a, that would no? be great. I let's think, look that up. Let's look it up. <laughs> I think some of the people living next door may have heard the gunfire. Yeah. Maybe yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, what was that? Well, I, don't I, know. I heard Maybe. that they also filmed the moon landing out there. Is that true? It is true. That all happened on the, on the helipad itself. Yes, it's yes, a scoop. Indeed. It's a scoop. I knew it. I knew. Ladies it. and gentlemen, <laughs> you've heard it here. <laughs> Forget CBS and their and their deep investigative journalism. Forget it. <laughs> They're amateurs. We cracked the code. All the good scoops are happening right here. So you, you know, MASH was shot out there, but that's a very historic, you know, movie set uh, yep. property. There are a lot of movies, you know, what, from the ni- 1930s, really, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, no, from the 1940s. Now, the ranch itself was used for over 100 productions. Elvis's first movie was shot there. All kinds of stuff. Uh, let's see the 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 jump scene from Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, where the stuntmen, only the stuntmen, mm. are dropping off the off the rocks into the water. When you see them fall and you see them splash, mm-hmm. that is also Century Ranch. A famous Cary Grant movie called Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House was shot there, and the house is still standing all these years later. Really? Is it really? Uh, oh, I love that movie. I'm going to go yeah. back out there and see that house. I love yeah. that movie. Absolutely. And let's see. And Planet, most of Planet of the Apes, of the original Planet of the Apes, was shot on the ranch, uh, except for the Forbidden Zone, which was out in Arizona, I believe. Uh, and then, of course, the, the final beach scenes were down in Malibu at Point Doom itself. But there was a lot of stuff shot there. I mean, Robert Wagner shot seven different movies out there between Westerns and war movies. Robert Wagner has shot more footage on the ranch than anyone else. Hmm. It's really something. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And and the other one that's worth mentioning, too, is that the Best Picture Oscar winner of 1941 called How Green Is My Valley uh, was also shot on the ranch. And they did it there instead of going over to Wales to keep the cast safe because Daryl Zanuck, head of the studio when they were shooting that, was getting uh, from the War Department. He was hearing that the Nazis were trying to look for a high-value score, a high-value sinking of a boat. And so Daryl Zanuck knew if he was going to put his his famous actors and his film crew on a steamship and bring them over to Wales to shoot his Welsh-based movie, that that would be a prime target. So he said, I'm not going to take that chance. And so they built a Welsh mining town in Malibu Creek State Park. And it's right there on screen in How Green Is My Valley. It's pretty amazing. So aside from single-handedly clearing out acres of brush, what has been some of the bigger challenges with reviving the mash space? Um, let me think. It's uh, once that (laughs) terrible work was done, which still scars me to this day. uh, (laughs) Once that was done, it became fairly easy to maintain because it was, it was, uh, there was several large pieces of brush that in 25 years had grown up 
to be so thick that the the show ambulance that is still out there, the the really rusted one, mm-hmm. you could be standing you could be standing just a few feet away from that ambulance, and the brush was so thick you couldn't see the full size ambulance. Oh, oh my so, gosh! Uh, the set was basically blocked in half by a row of brush, and the row of brush was I think about fifty, maybe sixty feet long, and fifteen or so feet thick. So all of that had to go away, and it was a lot of little stumps, a lot of little growths that were happening. But after that got taken care of, really the maintenance now is just to is just making sure the grass gets trimmed twice a year because the grass out there will grow up to three to four feet tall. And at that point, there could be snakes in that grass, and we don't want visitors to be stepping around the set and stepping on a snake. So That's nice of you. Exactly. <laughs> right. So um, really, the biggest challenge at this point is just kind of trying to keep everything kind of status quo. So since the big uh, anniversary event, the, the, the first one in 2008, uh, we have added three full color uh, information panels, which the two of you saw that day. Mm-hmm. Of course, the replica of the signpost was there from the very beginning. Uh, it's also worth noting that the head ranger for the state park told me back in 2008, Rooney, if you put that signpost out there, it will be gone in a day. Somebody will steal it. And 14, 15 years later, it's never been stolen. Wow. How yeah. about that? I think that's due to two things. One is that the the pole that that signpost sits on goes about two and a half feet underground. <laughs> so the total pole length is about nine feet long, even though the pole is only six feet out of the ground or maybe six or seven feet out of the ground. And it is co- connected to a thousand volts of electricity too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Might have been exactly. Exactly. And it slowed down people right. dragging that thing. But I, I think it's a, I think it's a worthy observation and it is and it is it's really just a, a a sense that the respect for the show is so high. Interesting. No one has stolen the signpost. And talk about oh. a great collectible, you guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that signpost, if you Google uh sign, you know, MASH signpost, you'll find a bunch of MASH fans building replicas in their backyards. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them look close to what was on the show, but they don't really look really show quality necessarily. And that has a lot to do with the ability to replicate the letters properly. Mm-hmm. So I got very lucky. A friend of mine named Anelka Gallo, who is a graphic designer extraordinaire, she took the uh, a high-resolution photo of the only remaining signpost, the original signpost that's in the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. and she did a point-by-point recreation of the letters in a graphic design program and basically replicated the letters exactly how they were on the show. Wow. So instead of just kind of freehanding it and guessing what they may have looked like and getting close, that signpost that's out at the set now is the most uh, faithful reproduction that I've ever seen outside of... Obviously, it's basically meant to be a mirror of what's in the Smithsonian now. That's wonderful. How wonderful. My gosh, I didn't know anything about that. That is really cool. Who actually created and built the signpost? Well, there's been uh, there's actually been a couple over the years because what we do is we we want to make sure that they are made of wood. But and we could certainly make our lives much easier by um, using what's called woodcrete, which looks like wood, but it's made of concrete. But for authenticity purposes, I don't want fans coming out there and putting their hands on the signpost and going, oh, this isn't even wood. Oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
you know, because there's there's a thing of authenticity about this show and about that signpost. It really needs to be wood. So the signpost, even when it is coated with uh, UV protectant spray and and what's it called? A coating? It's called a not a gloss. It's a uh, finish. Yeah, finish. Thank you. So even though it gets coated with that material, uh, I have to test it mm, a couple times a year to make sure it's still beating water. But at some point, the hot California sun will just break down those letters and they start to literally peel off. Hmm. And so the sign, the signpost has to be remade about every five or six years. But that's kind of a thing of joy, even though that takes a long time, too, because when I do it and when uh, I've only I've done all the signposts up until a Super Mash fan who was part of your Patreon gang who was out there that day. Her father loves doing stuff like this. And so Mr. Knox up in Northern California made the most recent version of the signpost. It's at the set now. But it does require that it be hand-lettered for authenticity purposes. There is no fast way to do this. And so from those uh, stencils that my friend Anjelka made, what we do is we take those and we press those into the wood and we create a uh, carbon outline. And then we come through with a Sharpie pen and do an outline of the letters. And then we come in with special sign painting paint, which is very durable, but very thin, and do all the letters one by one, all the all the different cities and the mileages one by one. And it each signpost will take, um, I think, like the 20 to 30 hours, actually. So, wow. yeah, it takes a long time, but they last for five years. So that to me... That to me is is a small price to pay. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, I have I have a cohort in signpost production up in Northern California now. So maybe uh, if if Jim Knox, who might be listening right now, hi Jim, if he's if he's on board for another signpost in maybe four or five years, that would be fabulous. If not, I can jump back in. Brian, I think there needs to be a statue of you out there next to the signpost. <laughs> You think so? Yeah, I do. I mean, listening to you talk about your history with this and what you do, if it weren't for you, uh, that would be, as we've discussed, a you know a coyote den, really. Yes, yes, I I mean, gosh, or Coyote Lodge, which is the the barbecue restaurant we intend to open. Exactly. (laughs) Now, (laughs) if you let's say you were uh, awarded fourteen million dollars and a villa in Italy, and you went there and said, "Well, you know, not bad." I think I'm going to live here now. Yes. What would happen to the set? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do need to groom a successor because my plan is to be moving back to Oregon probably in 10 years. And and the question is, are there enough other people who have the same level of craziness to keep doing the work that I'm doing out there? <laughs> I, I wonder, now here's what's interesting. I wonder if what might happen is if before I go, I make... Uh, enough placards for the next 20 years of signposts and leave them with state parks because it's hard to imagine anyone in state parks wanting to take the time, wanting to take 20 plus hours to hand paint all those letters. Um, It's just, it's just not what they want to do. So there's a possibility that maybe, maybe Jim and myself might make uh, multiple sets to last far after I'm gone, and maybe every five or six years, when the, the when the one breaks down, we just put a new one out, and we've got a supply already set. So I think, however, I am encouraged by the fact that 
Even back in 2008, uh, State Parks was so thrilled by the response of the public and the response of the worldwide press to what we had done uh, because the Los Angeles Times gave us four separate articles leading up to that 2008 day, which is remarkable. And of course, the LA Times put all their stories on the Associated Press wire. And so they were sent out all over the world. And so uh, I, I think I think they understand that they have what could be uh, the most famous site in the entire state park system, in their state park system, sitting right there in Malibu Creek State Park. There are other places that get more visitors, but as far as global visibility, nothing touches the mash set. Nothing even comes close. So, so, so what is the what does a flood of visitors mean to the state park? So, if a, you know, four hundred people suddenly go out to the mash set, yeah, what does that mean to the state park? Because you you don't pay four dollars to get in, do you? I don't think so. Well, there's a parking fee, okay, but hundreds of people, in fact, thousands of people every week park on the outside of the park and just use the trails to walk in. So, financially, it doesn't mean that much. Mm-hmm. But what what state parks loves to see, however, is they love to see visitor count. And they do visitor counts. And they, over the years, you know, since that first revival back in 2008, the traffic to the MASH set has gone from, no kidding, about, I don't know, 10, 12, 20 people per month to about 1,000 people a week. Holy moly, really? Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of people going out there. And it's also become one of the top hikes in the Los Angeles area because there's something, there's a reward at the end of the hike. And so it gets written up and included in a lot of top 10 lists of places to, to walk and hike to in Los Angeles and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's been really good for the park. And so that's why I think this year, in the 75th anniversary of Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, they are looking at restoring that house, at least the exterior of that house, and having another big celebration for that house, so, nice. which would be nice. Yeah. And whoever does the Mr. Blanding's podcast can come out and do a, a live episode <laughs> from there. Wow. I've heard it's a guy named Ryan. Okay. No. <laughs> I, I want to be Cary Grant. I can do Cary. I'll go out and do Cary. <laughs> so going back to feet on the ground, so the more visitors a state park receives in that that foot count or whatever you called it. It does that equate to more funding for the park or some sort of something that goes on from governmental uh, organizations? I don't know. That's a great question. What I do know is I would imagine that the that the more a certain park grows, the more money has to come their way because they have to hire more rangers uh-huh. to handle the flow. They have to hire more maintenance people to handle the flow. Uh-huh. Things like that. So I think I think it's good for them uh, from that standpoint, but really from a cultural standpoint, anytime a state agency can get worldwide attention, for God's sakes, that's a lovely thing for them. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but it is, like I mentioned earlier, it is absolutely has been for, a, for decades, the standing of state and national parks in most cases, just to let nature take its course and to not do anything. But I think part of the reason why I was allowed to do this quote unquote, unauthorized clearance is because a few years earlier than that, Yosemite National Park had trimmed away trees that had grown so tall that you couldn't see one of the famous waterfalls from the trail anymore. And that was kind of a big watershed moment for Yosemite National Park was to trim trees away to increase the visitor value. So when that happened, I think all of a sudden it kind of became okay to maybe not always let nature take its course. And 
so so I think that happening may have may have helped me in my little mission. So if somebody is listening and they want to make the trip out to the mash set, just give us kind of a, a primer, a, a you know mash set one hundred and one. What what do they need to know? Okay, so first thing is on the uh, on the Malibu Creek State Park org website, there is a mash page. And if any, any for any first time visitors, I recommend going to that page and downloading and printing and taking with you a copy of the route map to get out there, because you are going into the backcountry. Uh, there are some signs, but maybe not enough signs um, because you're in the backcountry, and especially this year because of all the flooding we've had out there. A lot of sections of trail have been literally wiped away; they're just gone. And so after flood years like this, there's a process of rebuilding trails and stuff like that. You can still reach the site, but right now, for example, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to have to ford 20 feet of deep water, running deep water. So, But during the majority of the year and during the majority of the time, it's a, it's a mostly flat, easy walk out there. It takes 45 minutes to an hour from the main parking lot. But as I mentioned, uh, we recommend that people uh, always print out the map, especially the first timers. But once you've done it once, then it will be uh, usually it sits in your head and it's a pretty visual thing and you know which way to go. And it all looks familiar at that point. But we also recommend uh, always that especially during the prime hiking season of spring through fall, that people bring a wide brimmed hat. Please bring water because the backcountry on an average summer day is almost always above 90 degrees out there. It will peak out at 100, 105 sometimes out there. And you are in the backcountry where there is no cell service and no ranger station and no restrooms and all mm-hmm. that type of stuff. So we ask people to ask people to be prepared. So that's all. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you say 110. Yeah. I mean, I remember being out there. And as I've said, you get there at you know, 630 in the morning and it's very, very cold and yeah. we're all freezing. Yep. And then at about noon, it's 110 degrees. And it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, you had to shoot scenes, you know, covered in big coats with 110 degrees. That's, that was pretty wild stuff out there. Right. But really fun. I, you know, if, everybody that's listening to it, I highly recommend going. It's a real fun trip. And like Brian is saying, it's not a terribly difficult thing to get to. But boy, you know, be careful, do what he said and go out and visit it because, wow, it's a lot of fun to see. It really is, yeah. especially when you you get there and you see the the mountains and suddenly all of it kind of becomes recognizable. Yes. Uh, when you first get there, you go, where am I? But then suddenly you kind of get on, into it and you see the, the photographs and the things that you put up there and, and really make it come to life, which is really fun. It's funny that a question that I get out there all the time is, well, are the are the sets and the buildings ever going to come back? And I have to explain to people that this is now a state park. It is not a TV show set. And that if we put that stuff up, it, the maintenance issues between people pilfering pieces of the OR building or or the officers club would just be it would be a maintenance nightmare. But it's also interesting, too. That the set, as Jeff will attest, was much smaller than people think it was on television. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It really was. When Hawkeye and BJ, for example, would sprint out of the swamp over to the OR, at the actual set, it was about 12 feet. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And there were times when when they would do a camera pan across the entire exterior set, and to make it look larger, they would deflate some of the tents down to the ground so that you couldn't tell how close stuff was. <laughs> but and that was a, that was a very common trick and a, and a very smart thing to do. 
but the entire set is approximately 200 feet by 200 feet. And that's not very big. Yeah, I, I had always heard that, you know, going into the 50th anniversary celebration, I had always heard that it's much smaller than you expect. Right. But I was not expecting it to be that small. Right. <laughs> it, was still, it still really surprised me when we when we got there. I, I remember thinking, wow, this is it? This yeah. is, is this, or is this just part of it? Or no, this is it. This is the entire thing. And it's, it's stunningly small. It really is. But, but it's also interesting too. And the reason why I also explained to people about the, about the tents and the buildings not coming back is because if we brought them back and put them where they really were on the show, people would howl and go, this isn't right. This isn't authentic. It was bigger than this. Yeah. Now, the other thing, too, is that, and it's absolutely true, that anyone who knows about film and television physical set production is that they often build things in seven-eighths scale. So the OR building, probably the most famous, you know, the L-shaped OR building that was used in so many shots was not even truly full size, not by a long shot. I have pictures of of Mike Farrell and, and Alan standing in the doorway of this building that we think is 30 feet wide. That's what we think it is. But you take their six foot body frames and you turn them sideways and you realize that that building is maybe 12 or 13 feet wide. It's much smaller than people think. And so if we put that stuff back up, people would be very disoriented. They would go, wait, wait, it's too small. <laughs> But but yeah. here's the nice thing, too, is that the imagination, by not putting the buildings back and showing you on displays where stuff was, it's better for the visitors because then they can just picture where stuff was and not have any conflict with a crowded, a truly crowded set, which is what it was. And it was even more crowded when Altman shot his movie because there were twice as many buildings for the movie than there were for the TV show. And somehow he got two helicopters on that helipad. And I don't know how he did it without killing somebody. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, he did yeah. kill a couple of people, but you know, <laughs> right. I mean, he did kill a couple. I mean, well, no, no wait. I don't want to get into that. No. <laughs> So, Brian, on behalf of MASH Nation, thank you for really single-handedly yeah. bringing this MASH shooting site back to life. Without you and your efforts and your vision, we we wouldn't have a place to be able to, because we can't go to stage nine. You know what I mean? Right. People just can't walk up to stage nine and soak it all in. But here, you can. You can visit this place where, where our favorite show is came to life and we have you to thank for that. So thank you. My pleasure. Well, also too, in regards to stage nine, if you walk in there now, you're going to see a sitcom set or something. And right. It, it, yeah. I mean, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll get an empty stage and you can kind of picture where stuff was. But no, it's it doesn't have the resonance that the outdoor set would have anyway. And and kind of in terms of the uh, speaking to the idea that things look smaller, if everybody had a, an opportunity to go on stage nine when the set was there, the yeah. entire MASH camp was there, right. if you walked out of the swamp and tripped, you'd fall into the mess tent. Right. So it's it was, you know, four feet away. It was not, you know, it, it was so small. I think going onto the set, everything would be even smaller than uh, the impression that you get when you go out to the ranch. It's it's just tiny compared to what it looks like on television. It really is. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, you're such an interesting person and you've done such a wonderful thing for the show. Uh, and for everybody who enjoys the show, do you, 
what do you do? <laughs> what what the heck uh, what the heck are you all about, Brian? Because you, you are a terrific guy and have so much energy. And uh, are you still writing books? Because I know you did write a couple of books, right? Right. Well, I've done I've done a uh, my my book Three Magical Miles uh, is a history book of the area around the state park because it is. It is one of the most historic areas of California, or historically dense, I should say, uh, because it is the only known community in California that has a one-room schoolhouse, a general store, and a post office dating to the 1920s, all three of which are still standing and still in use today. And on top of that, having two movie ranches, one for Paramount Studios, one for 20th Century Fox there, uh, we have an old racetrack there. We have one of the oldest homes in L.A. County right there. Uh, there is so much cool history. It's just it's remarkable what's what's ha- what has happened out there. So that's been my primary book. But when I'm not when I'm not doing stuff like that, I am being an axe wielding and and chainsaw wielding terrorist. So interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Is that financially rewarding? I don't, uh, I, I'll look into it. I mean, I don't know. What was the name of your book again? We want everybody to go buy that book. That's fine. It's uh, Three Magical Miles. Three Magical Miles. Yeah, and, right. and it's there is a website for threemagicalmiles.com. That is my website, and I sell books directly through that. But I have another uh, very worthy plug to put out there. Kelsey Knox, who was at the 50th anniversary event, uh, she is a MASH superfan, died in the wool. She is the head archivist at Pepperdine University, which is the closest archives to the MASH set. And she is assembling what we want to be uh, the, the largest collection of authentic props from the show to be archived literally minutes away from the old set. And so what's nice about this is that there is an open call for materials. If anyone wants to donate things, your name will be attached to your donation forever. So when the item is put on display, your name will be shown there as the donator. And even more people will love you if you want to share your props. But we are looking for authentic show props and not necessarily the MASH trading cards, not the board game, not the VHS cassettes. We want stuff that's museum worthy. But Kelsey is doing a terrific job assembling all this stuff. And one of the daughters of the caretakers of the Fox Ranch started out that collection by donating some of the stuff that the studio gave to her father and her father gave to her, which is nice. So. Hey, hey, Ryan, why don't you donate me? Hey! <laughs> you know? <laughs> You get your name on stuff, and I have a you know place to yeah. go and close to the ranch. Great, that's a great you know, idea. I just got to dust you off and and ship you over to Kelsey. Yeah. <laughs> so so now here's the great thing too: is a carbon freezing. You know the thing that Han Solo went through. <laughs> we can carbon freeze Jeff and put him on display in perpetuity, right next to Walt Disney. <laughs> yes. Yes. This has been fun. This has been fun. Brian, thank you so much for all you do and all you are continuing to do for MASH fans around the world. Uh, Again, if you want to see pictures from these celebrations, and also you can download the uh, map to the MASH site at MalibuCreekStatePark.org. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure, guys. You know, wasn't Brian a lot of fun? He's he's a great guy, and he's what a great uh, a lot of energy he has. He's yeah. up and going, and you know, running, and it's he's very it's, passionate. It's, yeah, he's very passionate. It's that passionate energy that allowed him to clear the brush and make this all happen for all of us. It's a yeah. remarkable thing. Yeah. He he, we really owe him. Any Mash fan really owes him because without him, 
like I said, it would just be filled with brush and that would be it. But boy, he really, he really went to the, went to the mats and, and cleared it away and did a really beautiful job. He's a good guy, really good guy. And you will find links to purchase his book and also links to the uh, MASH set site. You can find all those links in the show notes for this episode, episode 98 at mashmatters.com. Also on there, uh, you can find an email address to uh, email Kelsey about the Pepperdine archives. You know, uh, he talked about that a little bit. And I, I reached out to Kelsey. And uh, just to clarify, Brian talked a lot about props. She was telling me that they don't have a lot of room there. So they're also looking more for things that are more compact. So scripts, anything like that. But there's an email address. If you have something that might be good to donate to the Pepperdine archives, you can find her email address there. And I think we should have Kelsey on the podcast at some point to talk about these archives and, and, you know, and find out exactly what she's looking for and what she has already and, and why they're doing these archives. And I think that would be a cool little discussion. I like that idea. So they want smaller things. So you donating me is not going to work? No, but I think we could donate Gary Berghoff. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I went there. Well, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, well, we could look at that. Yeah. Okay. Well, good working with you, Brian, and take care. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Gary. I'm very, very sorry. Hey, and Brian also wanted, and I know he mentioned her during the interview, but uh, really did want to give a hat tip to our friend Zan Dubin for all the work she does uh, to help, uh, especially with the 50th anniversary celebration that we just had last year. Zan, you are awesome, and thank you for all you do to, to help us out with the MASH site. Yep, indeed. And thank you to our Patreon VIPs for all that you do to make this podcast possible. And we want to give a shout out to some of them, including Private Francis Gomez. And Corporal Dennis Kirk. Corporal Brady Palmer. Captain Brian Husvar. Captain Leslie McCabe. Captain Thomas Krause. And Major Anthony Mascari. Thank you for supporting the show on Patreon. You too can support the show for as little as $3 a month. Just go to mashmatters.com slash support. All of our Patreon people are wonderful, aren't they? Thank you, everybody. That's that's a wonderful thing, and we appreciate it. Well, except for that one guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's, he's a jerk. But other than that. He's an idiot. Uh, anyway, uh, no, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. You guys make this show possible, and we couldn't do it without you. Yeah. And thank you to everyone who listens and sends us uh, some cool comments. Now, we will get back to the episodes where we uh, answer questions. And, well, when I say answer, I, I'm using air quotes right now when I say answer because sometimes <laughs> we don't really answer the questions. We, we will be getting back to that. But we do have a couple of interviews and some special audio to share with you in the upcoming episodes because we are creeping closer and closer to episode 100. Episode 100. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I know. That's a lot of episodes. It is. Considering we didn't really say much in the first 98, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot. How we've been able to sustain this for 100 episodes, I have no idea, but we've done it. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's that uh, one uh, one Patreon guy. He keeps listening, so as long as he keeps listening. We're going to keep doing it. It's all right with us. Yeah. All right. Until next time, here's looking up your old address. <laughs> <laughs>